Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. So happy to be with you for another week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, here we are. It is like full on feeling like, well, I guess it doesn't ever really feel like summer here, but I know for many of you, it feels (laughs) like summer and I want to honor that. So (laughs) congratulations for the warm weather that you all have been having. From the Uh, Bay, from Bay Area people who, who just wish for summer. Or we get, a, where, yeah. we get a little of it later, like in September, October. <laughs> yeah. Or we drive to it. Yeah. The thing. There's that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm wearing a sweater um, as <laughs> per usual and it's fine. That's, that's our life. I have to say, I still like for me now as a Southerner, having not been back to the South in over I guess, what is it now? It's been, yeah, it's been a year and a half. I'm totally missing it. I understand the cicadas are coming out and I'm like, <laughs> uh, I just would love to be there. I'm from Atlanta. It's a beautiful place to be this time of year and I'm just totally missing it. So um, I know it's probably not perfect all the time, but I hope you all are appreciating all the, all the weather, all the outside. Time. Indeed, indeed. Nobody really wants to hear Californians complain about where they I know. are. Um, it's, <laughs> that's like not a thing, but I am always doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's still totally a thing. I had coffee with a person yesterday in San Francisco and it was like, it was hilarious because we both, I, I live in Oakland and he lives down in the South Bay. And so both of these places are warmer and sunnier if you're familiar with like microclimates of the Bay Area. And, but, but I picked a coffee place in San Francisco that was right where sort of the fog line is. Um, and so we were sitting, we were just absolutely huddled sitting outside. I had, a, I had like my, you know, hat on, like my winter hat on sure. and a coat and was all sort of, you know, wrapped up with this little cup of coffee because the wind was blowing so hard. The fog, yep. you know, the cold foggy wind was blowing so hard. Um, that like you could barely stand up and that was that's like a normal thing to happen in San Francisco this time of year and I felt sort of silly for not recommending I don't I know, know a warmer place to have a cup of coffee but that's no us. I I totally know I especially feel that way at this time of the year because this is when it's spring has is turning into summer in most other parts of the country and we just don't have that transition here and I think of it I think of it in New York a lot because that's when like the parks just bloom out of control and everything explodes with vegetation and it's gorgeous and yeah I don't know and like just the life of the city yeah yes and I are both actually there was the first way that we bonded was our love of New York I'm pretty sure yeah and and our desire to be living there um at least some portion of the year which both of us have managed to do over over our lives and yeah it's I I miss New York right now it's definitely one of those places. I just, um, yeah, I don't know everything about it and uh, what, what I've been hearing from friends that people are moving back and that like the, the life coming back into the city is really palpable. So absolutely. 
Yeah, it, it does seem like a good time. And that is a perfect way to segue into our guests for today because we have one of my favorite New Yorkers, uh, Daphne Rose Sanchez is, is joining us. Welcome Daphne. Hi everyone, happy to be here with you today. And I appreciate the love for New York. <laughs> yeah, we have so much love for New York. Like I think Kara and I could sit around and talk about like our favorite places to eat and like what streets we like walking down and all that stuff. So, no question, anytime I'm there for it. <laughs> yes, so and I am here for it. <laughs> uh, well, um, as much as we would love to just talk to you about um, that wonderful city all day. Um, we are going to talk about your incredible work. So let's start um, with just a quick bio for those that are not familiar with Daphne. Um, Daphne is a New York native who's been passionately working as an energy equity advocate. Uh, she founded Kinetic Communities in 2017 when she saw the representation gap in the energy sector and knew something had to be done. Kinetic Communities is a New York certified social enterprise benefit corporation, which advocates and implements strategic energy equity market transformations for diverse New York communities. Kinetic Communities has received recognition for their vital work ensuring frontline communities and people of color are a priority in a just clean energy transition. And I will say, I just have learned so much in the past year about Daphne and Kinetic Communities and all of the incredible work that they're doing um, it's been such, uh, uh, such an inspiration, I think, especially like, I don't know, we'll talk about this a little bit, the unique stuff going on in New York, but it, um, I'm really so honored that you are joining us, Daphne, and excited to, for you to talk to us about your work. But before you do, please just tell us about you, um, how you got involved in the energy sector, what's been, you know, your path in, in life? How did you get where you are today? Yeah, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, being here with both of you today and with everyone that's listening. So happy to talk a little bit about my, my uh, interesting pathway into this, into this sector. And I find it funny to talk about sector because I, I just, I don't know, I really enjoy the work that I do. And I see it part of my everyday life. But Hi, everyone. My name is Daphne Rose Sanchez. Uh, she, her pronouns. I am the executive director of Kinetic Communities. Um, as mentioned, Kinetic Communities is a MWBE B Corp here in New York City focused on energy equity within affordable housing, prioritizing um, New Yorkers. So my pathway is a quite interesting one. I was born and raised in Brooklyn and my father was born and raised in Brooklyn. And my grandma was born and raised in Brooklyn. We have um, pretty deep roots um, into the neighborhood that I, I was raised in. And um, I grew up in public housing. And so when you grow up in public housing, you don't really understand the relationship that a built environment has with who you are and, and, and what you will do in your life um, and how people associate um, your worth based off of your home. It wasn't until um, I was in middle school that I started to realize that people would associate my personal worth with living in public housing. And they'll say pretty messed up things like, oh, you know, she's a Puerto Rican from the project. So don't bother teaching her. Let, let her, um, you know, might as well go and cut class because you're not going to learn anything. You know, you, 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 you're from the projects and 
and that's just your career trajectory. And it was, it was so jarring when, when this, when this teacher had told me this, because I thought to myself, like, you don't, you don't even know me, like, you don't know my family, you don't know what I've done, um, you know, what kind of work my parents have done, but you are purely um, judging me by the four walls that I happen to be living in and sleeping in and eating in. Um, and it was such a weird moment in my life where I thought, you know, why is it that I have to feel embarrassed of where I live? Why is it that people look at me without me speaking, just knowing by the address, right? Hearing that I come from um, Cooper Park houses and my father comes from Mar Marcy houses, using that terminology makes people feel such a distaste <laughs> for me. Um, and, and growing up in, in this type of developments, you're taught, you know, sh just whatever, ignore it. That's just how people are. That's what they perceive you to be. And you're going to just continue doing what you, what you got to do. Um, and I started kind of looking deeper into, you know, what does the built environment means? What is, um, lifting up our community means and by our community I'm thinking about my family my mom my dad my cousins my brothers my sister my, I'm sorry my 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 aunt my cousins uh kids their their brothers and their sisters and um I'm like how do we how do we get out of this this cycle <laughs> this cycle of 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 nonsense so I started studying interestingly enough by accident, um, sustainable urban environments. And, and I started hearing about climate change and how it impacts um, different communities and what we need to do in order to make the environment a more sustainable place, as well as can some construction management. It was relatively new. And at the same time I was studying this, my parents were the first people in our family to purchase a home. And so for me, it was extremely, um, it was an an extremely exciting but very nervous moment because I thought to myself, you know, nobody buys a home in our in our family, and there's a reason why. And you're gonna fail, and we're gonna wind up in in um in in the shelter because my parents were in the shelter before they went into public housing. So I was being a very negative Nancy, and my parents are like, Daphne, this is you know for this is for you, you know, this, you, we have to move forward. Um, and so fine, I begrudgingly um. Uh, was happy for them uh, to buy a home and everybody in the family were, were, were was in tears when the, the closing happened because they were the first people to leave public housing. Um, I kind of wish I wasn't so mad about it because a year, not even a year afterwards, um, something horrible happened and it was Hurricane Sandy. So my parents were at home in Staten Island, New York, which is, um, if you're from Brooklyn, you know, you don't really talk about the other boroughs, but it's the borough that's under us. Um, and it was only the only place that my parents could afford to live. And we were in the home and around six o'clock in the afternoon, we started hearing the sound of water. And the sound of water started gushing and gushing louder and louder. And I thought to myself, my dad left the toilet running and we're not in public housing. Like you can't be um, mistreating the home. We have to pay for, for water. Um, my mom is, my father's Puerto Rican. My mother's Costa Rican. Um, they were both born in Brooklyn, but my mom had spent some time in Costa Rica and she heard the sound and she was like, Daphne, this is floodwaters. Like this sounds like floodwater. And I kept cracking up because I was like, mom, you 
I love you, but you exaggerate. Like, this is not Costa Rica. This is New York City. It's the best city in the world. Like, nothing like that ever happens. And as I'm, <laughs> as I'm meanly in front of my mom, um, she opens my window, my windows curtains. And as she slides those windows curtains, there was just a wall of brown water. And I stood there in shock. And I thought to myself, oh, man, she's right. This is this is flood water. You know, we're, we're going to drown. Um, and I, I've never experienced panic attacks, but I'll say that day I had like four panic attacks. I picked up my, my schoolwork and I picked up my dog and I ran out of that room. And by ran, I mean my mother pulled me out of that room because I just stood there looking at that brown water in that window. And I really am grateful for her pulling me out because the moment she pulled me out, the window burst and the, and the floorboards burst and water just starts gushing in from every corner of that bedroom. So I go up in the second floor. Um, my father is with me. My mother is with me. And we're calling 911. We're putting it on Facebook for people to call 911. And we're sitting, we're sitting on, the, on the roof of our home thinking, you know, this is it. This is, this is the moment that, that we're, we're not going to make it. And, I, and instead of being supportive, I turn around to my mother and my father. I'm like, this is why you don't need public housing. <laughs> this is why we're not supposed to buy a home. Um, and my mom was putting, you know, blankets and putting the number three on some white blankets. And I didn't know at the time she was letting um, first responders know that there's, you know, three bodies in the home in case, um, in case we didn't make it. And the second thought that came into my head was after being frustrated about the situation was, what's the point of me studying about sustainability and about the built environment if right now my family needs it and I can't do anything about it? So I'll say it actually took me about a month and a half to go back to school because I was so traumatized by the experience and so angry um, that I I couldn't think of what would be the pathway forward. And going into the engineering school, I was literally in tears when I saw my professors and, and it took me, it was, I was about to graduate too. So I, it was just, it was a very, very emotional time, but I started diving into like, okay, clearly climate change, we, we have to stop talking about it in the future. And we need to understand what's the impact of housing and the relationship that housing has with climate change. So um, the engineers at my school and the Association of Engineers had said, Daphne, we'll help you provide some pro bono technical support to Sandy victims. And so I started coordinating um, through another role, through a job that I, I was able to obtain to get those engineers to talk to people like my parents and other people that were affected by Hurricane Sandy on the structural analysis, how to make their homes more resilient and how to make their homes more efficient. As I was doing that, I started to research, why did this happen? Like, why, why us? And so I started looking at um, redlining. And so if, if you are all are not familiar with redlining, redlining was this um, practice where the government said, well, you know, if, if you are black or brown, we don't really want to lend you money to, to purchase a home. Um, but if you're white, here's, here's all the money that you need to buy a home. And then in the, in the 60s, they said, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't realize we were being racist. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to correct the wrongs. But what happened? Well, the areas that public housing was built on, if you ever look at the redlining map and the redlining maps of Brooklyn, 
the public housing that I was raised in was in a red lined area. So that's like a historical importance point. And then I started saying, okay, well, what is the relationship of that and where my parents went to move? You know, it's Staten Island. Staten Island is working class families. Well, I started looking into the redlining map in Staten Island. And what I found out was that the only areas that my parents were able to afford were areas that were previously redlined. Um, and it was a moment to me at that moment that I started realizing, okay, there's a direct correlation with the opportunity for generational wealth, the um, opportunity for climate adaptation, and the opportunity for sustainable housing. And I realized that whatever I move forward with in my career, I wanted to intersect housing, climate action, and economic mobility so that, to be honest, people like my friends and my family members that I grew up with in um, public housing doesn't have, don't have to experience what we experienced. That was, it was extremely traumatic. I, I joke around about it now, but um, it's, it's really not okay. Um, and it's really what forced me to, to realize like, yes, we talk about climate action and climate change and we need to do things for people's kids. And I'll tell people, climate action doesn't mean anything if we can't solve the issues that we have today. And so I went down this journey of, of, of working with utilities and um, nonprofits and um, aid, government agencies in, in New York City and New York State and kind of kept, kept kind of peeling the onion of energy efficiency and housing to where I am today, which is with Kinetic Communities. And, uh, and we've been kind of hitting the ground running ever since. Oh my gosh, there's so many incredible things about that story. And I'm so, it's heartbreaking. It's really like, ugh, I'm so sorry to hear that you went through that. Um, I also just have to say, yesterday I was spending time with the redlining maps of Oakland, where I live, where both Kara and I live. And I was, I was stunned. I basically, I looked at the comparison of the redlining maps to uh, the recently sold like Zillow map, um, recently sold homes. And I was just comparing the housing prices, like the prices of buildings that homes have sold for uh, and the colors of the map from 1937. And it's, it's the stunning part is that there were these little pockets of what the, the um, government considered to be these, you know, wider neighborhoods or you know wealthier neighborhoods and those are still the exact same ones that are where people are selling their homes for more than a million dollars it's just like and nothing else anywhere you know in Oakland yep. like just the fact that this you know I think one of the things that's so important about it right you were talking about it's like this is about wealth. I mean, and it's it's about wealth, that housing and buildings. I think some of us, when we're in engineering school or architecture school or whatever, think about it as like these sort of objects that that shelter us, and and they do, and that's absolutely critical. But then there's also this aspect of it that relates to our ability to grow wealth and be financially secure, and just like anyway, so I mean, much there. 
You're absolutely yeah. right, right? Because when we think about building design, when we think about passive house, when we think about electrification, we think about it within the mechanical system, right? We think about it in terms of infrastructure. We think about it in terms of economic um, return on investment. But we always forget to think about the social aspect. Like inside mm -hmm. these buildings are people and families with lives and cultures and traditions. Um, and it's important for us to transition off of fossil fuels, but it is equally, if not more important to understand um, and incorporate ourselves into the existing dynamics and how do we uplift and mobilize communities to participate and even lead this transition without, um, without kind of accelerating gentrification or without um, decreasing um, labor, labor um, standards. Yeah, yeah, and and okay. So, so tell us a little bit about kinetic communities in in that sense. I know that that's a lot of the work that you're doing. So, you want to give us just like a quick, what is the what is the scope of your work today? Yeah, so I will say um, our team here at Kinetic Communities is working with utilities and agencies and local and connecting them to the local ecosystem. So, understanding that we do have this goal, right? We want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We want to reduce um, kilowatts and therms. But how do we do it in a way that is mindful of the existing ecosystem and is incorporating ourselves within the fabric of the community? So we have done a couple of projects thinking about um, electrification and thinking about workforce and specifically. There's one project in particular um, where we're looking at, okay, the city of New York and the state of New York is looking at pathways to electrification, pathways to um, eliminate fossil fuels, which means eliminating steam systems, eliminating boilers. What is the existing fabric of a community that is currently operating and maintaining and selling and distributing those systems? The vast majority of, of that ecosystem are minority and women contractors, immigrant contractors. But what is the what is the ecosystem of the electrification market? The vast majority of that are really large firms, really large manufacturers, contractors that spread across state lines. And so if we're talking about a system transformation or an industry um, industry market transformation, the pathway for least resistance, is utilizing large contractors, large manufacturers, and large distributors, which will not take into consideration the local fabric. So in a pilot that we're doing right now is we're telling uh, the state of New York, we hear your interests, you hear your goals, but let's take a step back and let's see what are the opportunities for existing minority and women-owned businesses, existing um, local contractors to learn about this new product, right? And it's not new, we can go into that um, a little later, and add, add it into their existing operation so that when the transition happens and when it's mandatory, they don't either A, have to compete with a large contractor um, that has been doing this for 10 years, and B, doesn't have to learn something so quickly that they wind up going out of business. And then you're cause, causing a, a local economic um, depreciation. And so in that pilot, we're working very, very closely with both the state 
and also with a local um, city agency that provides operational capacity support. So it is important not only to, to kind of provide that information and, and on energy efficiency and electrification within the community, but also to understand what are some other organizational capacity skills that are needed that can support and uplift those businesses so that when the transition happens, they're not left behind. Oh, man, yeah, these, these are really critical. Like, I just appreciate the attention to like, how is this actually going to manifest? Um, and, you know, on like, there's just a, there's a really holistic thing that you're doing that makes a ton of sense and is um, impressive. And I want to ask you, like, um, I guess one of the reasons that I'm so excited about your work is that so much is happening in New York right now. Um, it, in New York State, but also New York City, uh, especially on the policy front, that's kind of pushing uh, the community to change. And it's meant that there's just a, a ton going on and so much activity and so much conversation happening, some really strong and, uh, and impressive uh, environmental justice groups that are getting into like a lot more details about buildings and you know construction renovation and electrification than and a lot of the rest of the country so can you talk a little bit about just kind of how that feels in new york right now the degree to which maybe you know is this policy feel like it's pushing things or or is the community pushing policy or like i don't know just tell us about it yeah i will say in new york there are two kind of landmark policies that have been that had took in place in um, 2019 and i have to say that a lot of the environmental justice community has been strongly kind of holding elected's feet to the fire and utilities and public service commissions feet to the fire what does a just transition mean and so in 2019 two legislations passed one on the city level and the other one on the state level the one on the city level is called the Climate Mobilization Act, which was a landmark legislation that allows or mandates buildings to cap their greenhouse gas emission. It also mandates buildings to put um, letter grades on their lobbies. It provides additional financial vehicles, and it also mandates um, solar on, on both residential, which I classify residential as anything that has five apart four apartments and less, and multifamily which has five apartments and more. A couple of months after that, uh, another legislation passed, but this time on the state level, which is called the CLCP, CLCPA, which is the Community Leadership and Climate Protection Act. It was originally known as the CCPA by the environmental justice um, community. However, um, the government likes to add its own little twist. And what's unique about the CLCPA is that it does have mandates to um, increase solar adoption to um, drive thermal efficiency and um, electrical efficiency, but it has a mandate that states 35 to 40% of all benefits should have to go into disadvantaged communities. Now, how they're, dis they're um, defining disadvantaged communities is still kind of coming into play, um, but what they have done is that they've done a series of advisory panels focus on different market sectors to really tackle a roadmap on what does the implementation of CLCPA look like. So my role has been um, actively as an advisor on the energy and housing panel for CLCPA. 
And what we have seen is our, our cohort, which is a small cohort of 12, we've been meeting since September, really discussing kind of what are the what are the pathways forward to electrify? But how do you do it in a way that's not harmful? It's not easy because, you know, from the 12 of us, there are very diverse perspectives. And so the questions of where is the money going to come from? How is it going to be implemented? When is it going to be implemented? Are questions that we're all constantly juggling throughout this process. From our point, um, myself and representing my firm, we want to make sure, as I mentioned in our, in our pilot, um, when we're talking about achieving incorporation of renewables and reductions of therms and really doing this market transformation, that we're doing it in a way that one does not sacrifice affordability. You don't want to get every single building close to passive house and net zero and no one from those communities can live in it. And two, not sacrificing economic mobility. So making sure that local local co-ops, local contractors, local nonprofits um, have an opportunity to participate and to um, increase, uh, increase their own revenues, um, as well as ensuring that revenue from the technology stays in the state and stays with those communities that need it the most. Because of, the legislation is great, but you know, how do you define benefits? You know, in one project defining benefits can be, you know, uh, an international company comes and puts in some battery storage and, and generates the revenue and gives like two jobs part-time and then lays people off. Or it can be, you know, a community-based um, contractor partners with a local environmental justice um, nonprofit to learn about battery storage, learn about the maintenance, develop the relationships with suppliers and manufacturers, have them collectively hosted and have them collectively reap um, the opportunities of revenue. Now, this, this is great for the community, but because there's more questions that have to be answered in order to get to the goal, it tends to be the pathway of more resistance and it tends to be something that city and state folks will kind of sh shear away because it's just too much of a headache. Um, but again, <laughs> community members are here for life. Um, so we really have to think about in, in the terms of the CLCPA as well as CMA, um, what are the tangible pathways and processes that can help in the short term and in the long term, the communities that have been traditionally disinvested in? Stephanie, I so appreciate the work that you're doing and I love hearing, I feel like it's such an example of the really, the nuts and bolts of what this looks like and what it looks like, what it, what, what it looks like in terms of actually implementing it and how we engage everyone and how that, I mean, there's, there's so many things that we usually hear about in a very abstract way. And I love hearing about your work because it, it feels like it's the, the sort of real tangible um, implementation piece. Um, I know that uh, you, you, Kinetic Communities has been doing a project with ACEEE, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so Kinetic Communities has been working with ACEEE on a initiative called Leading with Equity. And so Leading with Equity, if you all are not familiar with ACEEE, ACEEE has done 
um, a series of scorecards telling, you know, kind of competing states and utilities and cities and who's doing kind of the best on energy efficiency and transportation. ACEEE has incorporated equity metrics in their clean energy scorecards. And so the clean energy scorecards now are going to be going through an assessment and an emphasis on equity, right? Thinking about how energy efficiency is great, electrification is great, but it cannot operate within a silo. It is way more complex than that within our everyday lives. So what we are doing is that we are having a series of of workshops and discussions with environmental justice organizations, community-based organizations, and utilities to help dissect and understand putting down that framework of what are, like, what is environmental justice? What is restorative justice? How do we look and examine and critique and support um, our clean energy transition in a way that is uh, tangible, both in quantitative forms, such as metrics to see um, level of dollars that are invested in the community, and then how many of those are actualized and how many of them stays, as well as qualitative, right? What is the relationship that the utilities and the state agencies are having with environmental justice communities? What is the level of transparency? And so this particular project, which I will encourage you all to look at, again, it's called Leading with Equity with ACEEE, is really starting to, to tackle um, throughout the nation, you know, what are some, some opportunities to advance equity within the policy and programming frameworks that exist um, in our industry? That's fantastic, Daphne. Um, I also wanted to ask, if there's something that you are most proud of accomplishing in your work life that you'd like to share? Um, that is a great question. I will say, um, what am I most proud of accomplishing in my work life is my, I love my projects. Um, I think I, I have two. So one is I, I really am proud of the projects that we have been able to accomplish. You know, I, I have a, I would say everybody at Kinetic Communities has a fun job where they're working with industry professionals, they're talking very technical, and then they turn around and they walk, work directly with the community. And so I had one project, it was in Harlem where a low-income co-op, they were very skeptical of like government programs and we were supporting a government program. And it took me about five months to gain their trust. And we, we helped them do some very simple measures upgrade and heating distribution upgrade, um, making their roof a, a cool roof, which is painting it white. And they were so happy about it that they're every year they send us an invite to go to their, their community barbecue. <laughs> um, and I love it. It's I love their free food. It's, it's always so tasty. Um, and it's just nice to see how much, again, the built environment is making a community a community, a home, a happier place to live. So I would say that's one thing I'm all absolutely very proud of. I, I say I, I, I break, I bang my head on the wall a lot talking to policy people and, 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 uh, and people that are visionaries and then the contractors. But once I see the project, then I feel extremely satisfied. Um, the other thing is my team. Um, our team is made up of folks that are uh, 
within the sector, as well as a lot of folks that are not part of the sector, folks that came from the healthcare sector, from the um, environmental resources and education sector. The thing with our market is that people like to think um, it's special and like no one knows about energy efficiency and electrification and no one can get it done when in reality, it's construction. <laughs> it's construction and it's um, very similar to uh, social work. And so we we call our teammates um, energy social workers because we have to deal with multiple cases of buildings and projects and, and get all of the little pieces together for the case to actually um, be complete. And I will say my team has been extremely successful and I'm very, very proud of them in understanding kind of all of the information they need to know, as well as this is the information I don't need to know. I need to get an engineer, uh, underwriter, an architect involved. And it's a, it is a hard job to understand everything and nothing at once. And I, I would have to commend them commend them a lot for, for that work. And it makes me very proud to see, see their growth. Absolutely. Daphne, that's a perfect segue because it does seem like a lot of your work um, sort of addresses getting new people in the build, this part of the building industry. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what that looks like right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's kind of two pathways or maybe three pathways that we do this in. Uh, one pathway is that we um, do an energy equity fellowship program. And so they're thinking about existing ecosystem, right? Like every city has some sort of existing ecosystem for workforce. Whoever says it doesn't exist, they have never Googled workforce programs in my county, town, or city. Um, and so we have a, something called an energy equity fellowship program where we work um, in the city of New York there is um, a city agency called DYCD, so the Department of Community and Youth uh, Programs. When I was uh, 14, I went through a summer youth employment program, and I loved it. I had an opportunity to work with a councilwoman. So what we do now is that we collaborate with the summer youth employment program, which um, provides paid opportunities for high school students and college students to come and work with an employer over the entire summer. And so what we've done is that about 90% of those positions are always in retail or um, in childcare. And they have a very small sliver that goes to kind of what they call specialties. So they've slotted us into the specialty trade and we are able to engage high school students as well as um, uh, college students that are going through the public college system here, which is known as CUNY and give them an opportunity to learn about you know, what is the energy market? We'll give them a project. Um, we'll have them do some career meets with uh, senior level folks at the industry. And then at the end of their internship, they'll do a presentation to folks in the market. And we normally leave it open and our clients join and they get all nervous and then they do such a fantastic job. So that's one route. The other route is really um, trying to be intentional with our hiring practices. And we, we talk to our partners about their hiring practices as well. Being mindful of like, well, what is it that we're asking for candidates? You know, are we looking at our day-to-day -day roles and responsibilities? And are we asking for general ideas and concepts or we're being explicit with the task? So for example, um, and seeing what's the correlation between somebody's day-to-day -day task in one job and another and not dismissing them because they were from like another industry. So for example, if we had someone that um, 
the, the job was to do phone calls, right? Cold calls, and they had to coordinate the contractor with a building owner and, and file applications. We actually had someone in our team right now who used to work at a hospital. She worked with seniors and monolingual seniors, and she had to look at what was the surgery that had to be done and what was the proper payment option for the insurance that would cover. It's, it was a perfect fit. Um, but if you would just look at that resume and you see health insurance and you would see like healthcare sector and then you see our job, you, you'll say, well, she's not a good fit because she has no experience in energy efficiency. Well, the reality is all of us learned about energy efficiency and electrification on our job on the day to day. So we have to be mindful of what is that? What is it that we learn on the job and separating that and thinking about what is it that someone will learn on the job and what is um, what are items that they need to know and what are the skill sets they need to know and that's kind of the same pathway we tell our partners and we also do internally when assessing um when assessing candidates right that's so cool i love that example that's terrific um we're going to talk a little bit more broadly about the industry now but before we do that i wondered if you could tell us what industry or community you feel like you're a part of um that's a great question. I will say, I, I weirdly don't feel like I'm a part of a specific industry or sector because when I'm with the energy folks, they say I'm a affordable housing expert. And then when I'm with affordable housing experts, they're saying I'm an energy person. And then when I'm with an EJ, per, EJ with the EJ groups, they'll say, oh, you're a technical expert. So we're, we're a little bit of a, I say we're a very fluid um, and unfortunately, like I would love to have, I would encourage folks if they're interested in kind of being a part of this pathway, there's not a lot of us. I know um, you guys had a conversation with Chandra Farley over um, in, in um, Georgia, listen to her podcast because she does very similar work to me. Um, there's literally a handful of us in the country and we all hold each other like, oh my gosh, you, you actually exist. Um, so to answer your question, um, we, we live in the gray. And um, we live in this interesting gray sector where we're um, housing industry, real estate industry, energy industry, advocacy industry. Um, yeah, it's our it's our own little our own little space. It sounds like a really yeah, it's an intersection, right? It's so yeah. cool. Um, I I love this. I love those roles, like the ones where you're in the middle of a Venn diagram and no one really knows exactly how to define you. It's very special. It's cool. <laughs> um, okay, well, so we're, we we only have a few more questions left for you. Just a little bit more time. Um, so I want to ask you, given that you were at this intersection of these different communities, can you tell us what you think the biggest dangers are in sort of business as usual for building decarbonization um, today, like right now in 2021? What do you think the biggest dangers are? Yeah, I will say, um, I think the biggest dangers are the the pathway of electrification for the sake of electrification without thinking about um, economics and workforce and affordable housing. The reason why is we have seen, we've had experience for um, customers come to us with concerns that they've had third-party leasing agreements that interest rates has changed 
and there were no consumer protections on the state side supporting this person. Um, and this person was actually trying to refinance their home instead of foreclosing. And unfortunately, this person had started now is starting a foreclosure process just because they had some solar panels installed. And so my biggest concern is that if we continue business as usual with prioritization of decarbonization as quickly as possible, as large as possible, we are deprioritizing financial stability. We are deprioritizing affordability and we are deprioritizing labor protection. And so we strongly encourage everyone, like I am, again, I get it. I understand climate change is real. We need to get solutions, but I am not at all in the industry to making a better planet for the 1%. And if we cannot find a pathway that is equitable forward, then there's no pathway forward. And it is, it is my grim choice of if, if not all, then none. Um, and that's kind of my thought on um, the biggest dangers of building decarbonization. Yeah, amen. Thank you for that. And it's just been, I don't know, I think the pandemic in particular has, has made, I, has made that just like such a stronger point for, as, for all of us as a community. And I hope everyone's continuing to feel that, that sense of urgency, like just to, you know, I, I feel like sometimes it's important to just say this stuff as a white person, but like, I, I am not interested in fighting for a world in which we've, the only folks left are white people. Like what, you know, like, and I, yeah. I hate to put it that way, but like that is, is grim. And that is absolutely one of the things we've seen is a natural, um, like unplanned consequence of, business as usual, you know, of, of the way we've approached climate change, the way that especially white environmental groups have approached climate change in the past couple of decades. So I just want to underscore that as much as possible here, because as hopefully everyone is seeing through the work that you've been describing that you all do, it is hard work on to sort of um, pull out those roots of injustice that have been in place, you know, um, and to get these and to get a new default of equitable just transition to happen for everyone, you know, and like, so we gotta be, we gotta be vigilant. We gotta be active on this. Um, okay. Well, so thank you for that. Our very last question for you, which I'm really excited to hear you talk about is, um, is who you're most inspired by these days uh, in terms of people, uh, community leaders, anything, anyone that you run across, um, who, who do you get positive energy from? Yeah, I will say this is a maraud of people. Um, I literally, I think I have more group chat text messages and text messages with work people than I have with some of my cousins. Um, but I will say a lot of the women um, that I work with, especially women that have been really kind of rocking the boat and leading the charge on, 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 and sounding the alarm of like, hey, you know, this is important. We need to address it. I'd say a couple um, women of color collective sustainability that was started by Shante Harris and Jordi Vasquez. Um, they're a phenomenal, power, phenomenal powerhouse, really kind of challenging that status quo that women of color don't exist in the sector. I'd also say Christina Garcia over at um, Latinos in Sustainability. She um, 
is really kind of challenging the other status quo that there's no such thing as women engineers. It's like there's so many women and, and Latina um, and Latinx engineers. It's it's ridiculous. Um, uh, there's a lot. Uh, Bridget Vicente, who is another um, public housing resident, she is really tackling uh, recycling at um, at the resident level, right? We talk about recycling and we're like, well, why don't people do their part? Well, some people actually cannot like move. And so what she's done is she's hired residents and get residents to go to people's doors to pick up recycling. Um, mm. There's there's uh, there's so many, um, but I think the, the there's uh, just kind of thinking in my head, there's, you know, Donna Hope, who's working at Emerald Cities Collective, Collaborative, really thinking about workforce and the infrastructure. There's Raya Salter, who's working at the CLCPA, part of the, the Community Action Council, really advocating for um, another policy called the CCIA, which is the Community um, Investment, uh, the Community and Climate Investment Act. Um, which is strongly being advocated right now by a lot of environmental justice communities in New York that will um, provide opportunity to get $1 billion um, in funding for electrification in, um, in our communities. And um, yeah, I'd say those are, those are a couple of the folks. Um, and lastly, my, fa my family and friends, it's kind of pretty cheesy, but they are they're pretty inspiring because half of the times they don't know what I do. Like my grandmother tells people that I install panels one day. And then she says I clean toilets the next, like clean the toilet water the next day. <laughs> but like her level of excitement when she's talking to people um, in Puerto Rico and talking to other people makes me, makes me love her so much more. Cause she's like, don't, she tells me in Spanish, she's like, yo no sé que tú estás haciendo, pero yo sé que tú estás poniendo los panales. Like, eh, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you do something with panels. I know you clean the water. Um, and it's like, people get it. People really do get it. It's, um, it's great. It makes me very happy and, and, and it makes me chug along. Um, yeah, when yeah. I want to bang my head in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> the importance of a good community. Uh, that is wonderful. And it's also just, yeah, it's, it's inspiring to hear about all those specific people who I'm sure some of these women we will have on the podcast in the future, probably not your grandmother, although that would be pretty awesome too. Uh, <laughs> I'll say she'll just talk to you in Spanish the entire time and she'll probably be asking you what is electrification and then she'll say, oh, it's the air conditioner that also provides heat because that's what she talks, that's what she calls it. I'm like, yes, grandma, it is the air conditioner that provides heat. <laughs> <laughs> this is good, this is good. She can get us to some new audiences. I like it. Um, well, thank you so much, Daphne. It has been such a pleasure to have you on show just all of your perspectives have been amazing and um yeah thanks for thanks for taking the time thanks for having me and it's been a pleasure speaking with you both and have a fantastic day yeah you too and thanks uh to everyone who is listening that is at, at, that's it for us this week on the design the future podcast uh thanks for being here please leave us a review on apple it really matters it helps people find us Stay safe and we'll see you next week.